Welcome to the Midas Touch Legal AF Podcast. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Ben Micellus with Michael Popak, a.k.a. The man, the man, the myth, the legend, the Popokian. Michael Popak, how are you doing? I'm doing really great. I'm doing really great today, Ben. So good to see you. I'm really excited for this one. I saw the lineup that you put together, you know, that we cultivated for today's today's show. I really like it. Now let's see if we can get our legal AF law school graduates or future graduates to like it, too. You know, it's so funny, Popak. Whenever I do the intro, I'm always thinking, which nickname should I throw at you today? <laughs> should I go Popokian? Is it Popokian is isms? And so I love the engagement. I love the new legal AF merch, by the way, that oh, yeah. everybody seems to love. I think it was the right move to move away from, I think we had the legal analysis friends, which is what the AF stands for. And just go legal AF. People love that merch. And I think I saw somebody wearing it the other day, actually, out here in California <laughs> when I was going to a, a farmer's market. It was super cool to see uh, a legal FA. That will be that will be the highlight of my day. Oh, by the way, there is a growing groundswell for what you coined, which was the legal AF effort or effort for life, as one of our uh, major followers says. No, there it's great. And listen, we got to embrace the logo. It's a little cheeky. But but the title was a little cheeky when you and I came up with it. So it wasn't we shouldn't like run away from it. We got to embrace it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I like the merch legal AF or you illegal, you illegal AF or as everybody knows, the legal AFers know the Popokians know here on legal AF. We like to break down the pressing legal issues in digestible ways you could understand. So you could also learn the law as we discuss these issues, the complexities within the law. But we try to break it down in simple ways. The first item that I want to discuss is it goes into the fact why the legal profession um, are such stewards of our democracy and why it is so critical and so vital for lawyers to uphold their legal oaths, their oaths to protect and defend the law and the Constitution. And it's the fact that in this new book, Peril, by Bob Woodward, always gets incredible scoops, Bob. Um, But in this new book, he has uh, people saying how Trump was complaining that the only lawyer that Trump could hire to deal with all these bullshit cases that they wanted to file, the best he could really do was Rudy Giuliani because, quote, none of these sane lawyers would represent him. And it wasn't just Rudy Giuliani. There was a lot of other lawyers who were kind of of that ilk who decided to represent Trump. Um, But there were efforts at the very beginning, Popak, you might recall, of some large firms that were determining whether they wanted to help Trump and to help the GQP in these um, uh, fake 
cases that they were bringing in federal courts to try to overturn the elections in a democratic process that was a free and fair election. Midas Touch, you may recall, made a video for those who want to go back and check it out called Shame on Jones Day. Um, I just checked it out. It has about 1.7 million views. And Jones Day is a large law firm, very good law firm with a lot of great lawyers, a lot of lawyers I know and who I'm friends with. Um, who appreciated that we made the video, you know, and told me privately, great job on that video. There were certain people who were doing that case. Jones Day had to withdraw from that case um, and didn't pursue any more action in these election fraud cases. Jones Day made their Twitter completely private. And to this day, that was like back in November. I just checked it out again. They still have, if you go on their Twitter, you can't interact with them. Like they've disabled all comments. You know, which is still weird. Like you're a large international law firm that is representing major yeah. corporations and major figures. So suck stifle- it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> get a, a, a negative right. comment on there. But they had some good lawyers. But I think this, you know, this story basically shows. I think it was Trump being quoted. He's crazy. He says crazy shit. I get it. But none of the sane lawyers can represent me because they've been pressured. The actual lawyers have been told they cannot represent. Wait, my wait, stop. The actual lawyers won't take my case. I have to use Rudy. Exactly. <laughs> and look, I think that shows Popak the work of the Midas Mighty, you know, and you have to sometimes pressure lawyers to do the right thing. And the, the duty that we have as lawyers to do the right thing is paramount. And I think it's fine and would love to get your take like. I'm okay with lawyers representing people who are accused of crimes. Everyone has the right to a lawyer. You go back to, you know, the very founding of our country with John Adams, you know, representing uh, British troops who were charged in the Boston massacre. Um, And you want to provide that level of representation to people, but I don't think you should be able to overturn the Constitution, which is what those Trump efforts were. No, listen, we've talked about it on prior pods. I I don't want to live, and neither do you, and neither does the Midas Mighty, in a society where there isn't a vigorous defense for accused in our judicial system. And there are plenty of countries, and I'll tweet about them, where the accused is basically convicted on the day of arrest by a puppet government And there's plenty of those behind the Iron Curtain and otherwise, North Korea included. I don't want to live there. We're not talking about that, you and I. What you and I are talking about are lawyers who violate their oath that they take as constitutional officers, as legal officers, because they are advocating positions that have no merit, that are, as you said, either treasonous or mutinous for the overthrow of the country. A lawyer has boundaries that they are not allowed to cross. It's one thing, and we saw this in some of the cases that you and I talked about, about Sidney Powell, about Lynn Wood, about the federal judges who are now throwing the book at these lawyers in the cleanup after Jan 6th and after the big lie and saying, you don't have a First Amendment right as a lawyer. You have an ethical obligation and a constitutional oath that you obtain that you have to uphold. And, you know, just back on a personal note, because I know you and I share some of that with our with our followers and listeners. I was in Florida. I know it's going to shock you because you've made me Florida man on this podcast. But I, I was in Florida as a young lawyer when Bush versus Gore um, was being litigated. 
and in in Florida as the battleground. I was this will be no shock to anyone. I was on the streets uh, in front of the Palm Beach County Election Office every day while they were counting. I actually got on, if you'll believe this, I got on to a little known show called the Chris Matthews Hardball Show. Three times they pulled me off the street to be uh, part of um, uh, like an audience that Chris bounced ideas around with at one point. But my law firm had a choice at that time, whether to stay neutral or to jump in on the Democratic side at that time in the Bush versus Gore uh, debate. And many law firms in Florida that were really well-established faced a dilemma. Did they want to, at the peril of bringing in other business and pissing off other clients, did they want to do sort of what was right and get on one side of the equation or the other, you know, on the, on the vote counting on Bush versus Gore or kind of stay neutral. And unfortunately my law firm at the time, and I was a very young partner decided, no, that's radioactive that we're representing public sector officials. We don't want to get involved. And I did it sort of on the side privately, but there were law firms that stepped forward and said, no, we want to be. And and I'm okay with the ones that represented Bush. They were honorable people. This was a legitimate constitutional debate and discussion over vote counting. That's not what we have now. No credible human being on planet Earth believes that Joe Biden did not win or that voter fraud so infected the election that Trump actually won. There is no thinking human being that really believes that. There are paid shills, both political hacks and lawyer hacks, who have taken up the cause for money. But that, that that's different. And, and so the fact that it all came out now that, as we said earlier in a tweet, the quiet part is being said out loud. In, in Bob Woodward's book, where people are confessing to him and saying, yeah, we hired Rudy Giuliani because he'll say anything. He'll do anything for money. What a sad, will, right. And we will definitely keep everybody updated as well on the developments in the duty Rudy Giuliani uh, criminal investigation um, that's now taking place on multiple fronts. Tune into future Midas Touch Legal AF for those updates and Popak just briefly on the Florida issue with um, Bush v. Gore, we were talking about a few hundred votes that were at stake and the counting of those votes in one state versus the completely spurious, bogus, ridiculous uh, conspiracy theories being spewed here. Popak, I want to talk about a headline, and then I want to get into the law and what is really going on here. So let's start with the headline. Democratic lawyer Michael Sussman is indicted, accused of lying to FBI in Russia probe. What's going on here? A Democratic lawyer in a Russia probe who's being indicted? You know, Michael Sussman, a renowned preeminent lawyer at a uh, incredible law firm, Perkins Coy. Um, a grand jury is returning an indictment and Michael Sussman is a cybersecurity attorney. Um, and you think to yourself, why would a Democrat be in this Russian probe? Well, you dig a little bit deeper here and you have to recall and you have to remember that United States attorney, John Durham, who was the U.S. attorney, basically the the top prosecutor um, in Connecticut, 
who resigned his post as U.S. Attorney for Connecticut, but was appointed in October by then Attorney General William Barr as special counsel with the mandate of investigating, quote, the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. And that's what he was hired to do. So Durham is a lackey um, of Trump and Bill Barr for the purpose, not so much of investigating what Russia did wrong to to try to influence uh, the election and to try to sabotage and engage in the troll farms. No, I mean, that's pretty well established. What Durham was there to determine was how did all of the Russia information get out there? How can we go after basically the whistleblowers and the people who brought that to light? So, Popak, what's going on here? Yeah, this the, your headline sounds like Fox News's wet dream. But when you really unpack it, it, it has to do with the fact that Democrats have a moral basis, a moral universe that they operate in and Republicans don't. And what do I mean by that? So when when Biden took office legitimately, he could have basically fired this independent prosecutor or special prosecutor that Trump had appointed this John Durham to investigate what we refer to colloquially as the Russia hack investigation of 2016. He could have done that. Trump certainly would have done that or another Republican had they taken office. But Biden, you know, said, no, we're not going to play their game. We're not going to get down in the mud. We're going to let the special prosecutor, even though it was appointed by Trump, even though he has credentials that would suggest that it would be somebody that a Trumper would like and not a Democrat. We're going to let him do his job. And and really one of the only indictments, there's two indictments that have come out of this four or five year grand jury. Um, and this is one of them right before the end of a five year statute of limitations uh, for the federal crime of lying to the federal government, which is 18 U.S.C., 1001 often used in prosecutions because it's sort of easy. You don't have to prove perjury. You don't have to prove the person was under oath in a litigated environment and gave false testimony. All you have to prove or at least show to get the indictment um, at the grand jury level is that a government official, in this case, the general counsel of the FBI in a meeting with Michael Sussman, was lied to. At least that's the allegation. And what was the lie? What was allegedly the big lie? Did it have to do with the underlying material that Michael Sussman provided to the FBI, the white papers that were prepared with backup and and exhibits and information about connecting the Trump organization to a Russian bank and therefore the Russia hack? No, <laughs> they had no problem with the information. They believe that Michael Sussman did not properly reveal, quote unquote, who his client was or if he had a client at all. So in other words, he was there. They later, at least the indictment reads on behalf of the Clinton campaign when Hillary was running for for office and a tech and, executive, they say, right. And, and a couple of tech executives that were sort of related to this and some professors that were doing some work on behalf of the Clinton campaign and doing some research. But it really comes down to he didn't reveal that he was working for the Clinton campaign and by extension, the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, which begs the question, who did they think he was there representing his law firm at the time? And I say at the time, because since he's been indicted, either he's elected to or his firm has required him to resign from Perkins Coy. 
he was he, when he went that that day, that that day that will now live in his own personal history to meet with the FBI director. He his law firm was publicly announced as being the general counsel for the Clinton campaign. So here's a partner from a law firm that is publicly acknowledging that they are the Clinton campaign's general counsel. And, and the FBI general counsel is confused as to who this person is representing. And what they put in the indictment was, well, we thought Michael Sussman was just there as a quote unquote good citizen to give us a, you know, 500 page white paper. You know, all good citizens roll into their FBI office and hand in a properly researched dossier about the connection between one presidential candidate and our arch enemy, Russia. That happens every day. Okay, it doesn't. And so I find it sort of beyond stretching credulity that the FBI really was duped by Michael Sussman. Now, if Michael Sussman did, if he was asked point blank, who are you here representing? And he said, I'm not representing any particular one client. I'm not even sure that's a lie. I'm not even sure that is a lie because he was representing multiple Democratic interests when he delivered the thing. And at, at bottom, who really cares if the information that he was given that he gave to the FBI was credible and gave them leads and gave them information to condition condition or continue the investigation? What does it matter who they really thought he was representing at that particular moment? So they charged in the indictment. Well, had the FBI known that you were really representing the Clinton campaign, they might have. And then they kind of trail off. They don't really say what they might have done or not done in evaluating the credibility of that information. But in the meantime, a a a well-respected, you know, a lawyer in Michael Sussman is having his career basically you know, sacrificed on the altar of Trumpism for what? For what purpose? So uh, we, you and I are going to follow this closely. You know, I think he's been I think he's been railroaded here by a uh, prosecutor whose job is about to evaporate because statutes limitations are running. And he felt like he needed to put a big pelt on the wall so that Fox News would go crazy for a couple of news cycles. But at the end, you have a 40 year law career that stands, you know, in shambles and shredded because of it. Absolutely. And I mean, if you believe the case and you accept the facts as even pled in the complaint, what you're talking about is this semantic decision of or this just the semantics of whether or not he said this was my client or here are my clients or I'm giving this to you or do you represent someone? I mean, it's also very possible in connection with the meeting, the way the scope of a representation is, is that you couldn't reveal it. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's client right. confidences as well. Um, and also to say, is this specifically in the course and scope of a representation? Like, is there a billable hour connected with this specific act? Or do I have this information through clients that I'm presenting to you because the fate of our democracy is hanging in the balance? But here you have someone who was trying to help the country. Here you have someone in Sussman who wanted to do the right thing and to prevent Russia from going after the United States and destroying our democracy. And you have Trump appointing a federal prosecutor, a special prosecutor to go after the whistleblower. It's funny. I was in a case when I was in um, my global head of litigation world where, where Durham was the prosecutor in Connecticut. And all of a sudden he disappeared one day from the pleadings and from the case. And we were like, Hey, I wonder what happened to that guy. Now we know he popped up as the special prosecutor, but 
let me shock or maybe not shock our followers and listeners. Lawyers, good lawyers, ethical lawyers like Ben and I sometimes have to lie to opposite, not to the court, but to our opposition or to others in the legal process to protect the confidences of the client that we are paid and ethically duty bound to represent. Correct. And, you know, and and, somebody asked me point blank, who who is your client? I may be able to tell them. I may not be able to tell them and I may not be able to tell them that I'm not able to tell them. Right. And here the issue is, look, you cannot overtly lie to a law enforcement agency like the FBI. But in terms of a case about whether you specifically have to affirmatively share attorney client confidences with them, I think is something that you don't have to do. And it's a silly premise for a case. And so moving from a special prosecutor Durham to another place where there is a Durham in North Carolina, although it's not directly related. And I went and I went to Duke. It's a Durham near and dear to my heart. You've got Durham connections, Um, a North Carolina court after a trial, a long trial. Lots of times these cases don't go to trials. They usually end in uh, consent decrees, resolutions, injunctions. But a full fledged trial was held on North Carolina voter ID laws to determine whether or not they were they had discriminatory intent. Um, against African-Americans in North Carolina. These were additional restrictive voter ID laws. These laws, uh, Popak, I believe, were um, stayed since 2018. There was an injunction that prevented the voter ID laws in the restrictive voter ID laws in North Carolina from being enacted. Um, And then a full trial was held in April. Um, There was a full-fledged ruling um, that basically said that the law was racist. I mean, they didn't sugarcoat it uh, in this this opinion. I mean, if you just look at basically the headings of this ruling, it basically says, you know, North Carolina has a history of of imposing the, the table like, of contents, right? The table yeah, of contents yeah, a, tells you where you're going. They have a history of imposing racist laws. These laws are racist. They specifically target African-American voters who are more likely to lack qualifying IDs than white voters. Popak, this ruling is likely to get appealed, but I doubt there will be a ruling on the appeal before the 2022 elections. Tell us what's going on in this one. Yeah, this one's fascinating. And I'm going to do something that we, you and I haven't done, but I think we're going to start doing. You talked last week about this really eloquent and poignantly written um, opinion. And I think you and I are going to start on our Twitter feeds, at least for Legal AF, posting right after the podcast recording some of these opinions so people can that that it's not required to pass the course for legal AF, but for those that want to do a little more and see what we're talking about. So this was 102 pages. And what I liked about this is this is sort of the microcosm of everything you and I have been doing over the last 24 episodes, all coming to a head in one place. There's there's three or four interesting things about this case all at one time. One, we're going to talk about state constitutional analysis. We've always talked about federal constitutional analysis. And for instance, this state has, as most do, an equal protection clause that is coextensive with the federal constitution. But the entire analysis is under the state of North Carolina's constitution. 
The second thing that's interesting about the case is unlike other states, because there's a constitutional attack or an equal protection attack on the on the statute, a three judge trial panel, not appellate panel, not a, not an appeal. Three, three trial judges sat for this 20 day trial and the majority wins. So two out of three, whatever their opinion is, that's what got reported in the 102 pages. Then there was a dissent. They got written up as well. So we got a three. The first time you and I have talked about a three judge trial panel making a decision. And then we're going to look at legislative intent behind a statute and how that's used by a court to render its ruling. And and also docket and venue. You and I are going to talk a little bit later in the podcast about where cases are filed to litigators and trial lawyers like you and I are really, really important, even within states that people would say, oh, that's a red state. That's a blue state. Even within red states and blue states, there are places that are more or less conservative or more democratic. And where you pick and what judge you get as a result is really important to the result. So let's break down this one. This North Carolina passed on a referendum to change its constitution, to add voter identification and other, quote unquote, voter fraud issues. This ruling does not attack the constitutionality of the amendment to the North Carolina Constitution at all. What it goes after is the is the uh, statute that was passed by by the legislature of North Carolina. That's why they're the defendants in the case that was supposed to that, that was supposed to um, effectuate the, the amendment passed by the voters of North Carolina, because if there's a gap between what you're supposed to pass as the statute and the effectuating constitutional amendment, that's where mischief comes in. And that's what courts are supposed to protect, that the legislature has gone too far and farther than the amendment to the Constitution that the voters had passed. And again, this is all in the fevered pitch of the days after the big lie and Trump's loss to Biden. And what all these Republican houses, although North Carolina has really gotten to be more of a blue state, but it it, it still has the remnants of being in the South. And therefore, we always look with a jaundiced eye towards anything that attacks voter rights and black voter rights in a state like North Carolina, at least historically. So this panel said, let's look at the Equal Protection Clause of the North Carolina Constitution, which matches the one in the U.S. Constitution. And what they said is what we need to look at, for example, is the legislative history, the process by which this bill which is uh, a Senate, another Senate bill. Uh, we've talked a lot about Senate bills, but a Senate bill, how quickly it was passed. What did the sponsors say about it? What happened on the floor debate among the legislators? And can we ferret out and suss out from that a bias? And what they said was, if we apply all of those factors, and I just want to give our, our, uh, our listeners some of the factors, which are really, really interesting. One, the bill passed in 20 days. Normal, normal legislative session over a bill like this was 144 days. So they did it in 20 days. It's like the same 20 days that Coney Barrett got put into her Supreme Court seat in. So very quick, right? Heated debate. Certain black legislators were shut down from debate from the floor of the legislature uh, based on parliamentary procedural rules. But the judges all said, look, that's a problem. You did it too fast. You did it in the heat of the moment. You shut down uh, voices of color 
and minority uh, and diverse members of the legislature who all said, you're going too fast. This is going to have a disparate impact on black and brown voters. Why are we doing this? And the other thing that you look at besides the legislative history is the history of the state itself. And this panel of three said North Carolina has a terrible and recent history of voter suppression against black and brown people including federal cases that have come and the fourth circuit, which which is the appellate circuit for North Carolina, having to overturn a series of voter suppression laws that North Carolina was responsible for as recently as the 1990s. So when you look at all of that and you look at the actual text and language of the voter ID, which would have fallen disproportionately on black and brown voters, the two out of the three judges said there's no doubt in my mind that on the face of this law, it is racially motivated and biased and they're going to strike it down. One of now the things that court looked into also, Popak, which may be worth mentioning, yeah. is the number of instances of fraud and whether that jibed with the allegations. Yeah, I think over the past 20 years or 30 years in the extensive research, there were like two documented instances in yeah. the history of the state. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point you just raised that I want to bring up now. There, there, there is and has been for the last 40 or 50 years as part of political science, a, a whole um, segment of political science that's devoted to voting and voting rights and voting results, uh, looking, you know, holding up a mirror to our own process. And, they, and these researchers who get doctorates on this stuff and spend years in PhDs, they mine all of the data. And collectively, they have found that one half of 1% of voting is infected with fraud nationally. One half of 1%. Okay, it's not that it doesn't happen. I don't want anybody to think and listening to either Midas Touch or Legal AF with you and I, that we're suggesting that fraud doesn't happen. It does. It does, but it happens at such low numbers statistically that in no way could it ever could it ever overcome a national or local election. And when it is really that close, then they do recounts by hand and otherwise to get to the bottom of it. So the takeaway here is voter fraud happens, but it never happens historically at a rate that would be enough to change the outcome of an election. Such a de minimis percentage, and oftentimes the cases that we do see of voter fraud tends to be these crazy GQPers and the Trumpers who, you know, try to vote twice or three times. There was or dead a, people voting; they take <laughs> their mother's dead ballot. You know, it's such a GQP progression uh, projection thing. So we will keep everybody updated on what's going on in North Carolina. Uh, Popak, any final thoughts there? No, I think that's that's a fascinating case. It's going to be stayed. I think you're right. It's not going to impact the election per se. And I think when it goes to the, um, you know, the problem is when it goes to the fourth, I think the fourth tends to be a little bit more conservative, the fourth district court of appeal. I'm sorry, the fourth circuit. But listen, it's going to be another one of these. This is why you and I are going to be in business for a long time with legal AF. Hopefully that's music to our followers and listeners ears because next Supreme Court docket, Putting aside any more emergency applications, which could certainly come up in the months of September and October, we start getting to full argument in October and results in the spring. 
Um, you know, all of these things we're talking about now are critical constitutional, personal privacy uh, and and civil liberty issues, which are which are going to end up, unfortunately, before a Supreme Court that many that you and I and many of our listeners have grave doubts about. Absolutely. Let's talk Popak about Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Speaking uh, of doubts about justices. Exa right. Exactly the transition, Popak. That was a Popakian interception of the exact words. I was I was actually going to use that in the transition. But, the you know, his name's come up a few times this week, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The first is in connection with a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals nominee, Jennifer Sung. Um, Popak, I think we've explained to our listeners that with, we talk about the federal district courts. When these federal district court cases get appealed, they get appealed to the circuit courts um, that are throughout the country. And then ultimately those could get appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court um, takes not that many of those cases and only if there are disputes Usually, if there are disputes between circuit courts or some major constitutional issue or some bigger issues at play, will the Supreme Court decide to take a case on a, would say, writ of certiorari um, or a cert writ um, is when the Supreme Court takes a case. But here we have a Ninth Circuit nominee. Her name is Jennifer Sung. Her position right now, she's a neutral adjudicator for the Oregon Employment Relations Board. She's one of Biden's uh, federal nominees. She's nominated to be on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, when you nominate someone to be in the federal courts or a court of appeals judge like this, they have to sit before the Senate Judicial Committee panel um, who asks questions. And here there was a lot of grilling of Jennifer Sung over past remarks that she made. Well, she didn't make. It was in a letter that former Yale students submitted when Justice Kavanaugh was, was being nominated. Uh, and she that, signed it. And she, she did signed sign it, it. Um, calling him morally bankrupt. And so she was grilled whether or not he was morally bankrupt. She stated, quote, I did not write the letter, but I recognize that much of its rhetoric was overheated. And if by signing that letter, I created the impression that I would prejudge any case or fail to respect the authority of any Supreme Court justice or any of the court's precedents, then I sincerely apologize. She did not say that she does not think that he's morally bankrupt. And when pressed on that matter, she basically repeated that line that she would um, respect the authority that Justice Kavanaugh has as a Supreme Court justice, but would not answer whether or not he was moral bankrupt. Popak. Yeah, I I remember the good old days like 30 years ago when the only thing we were concerned about was whether a Supreme Court nominee smoked pot or not. Like Ginsburg had to give up his entire position and they had to replace him with somebody because he smoked a joint in college. Yep. And, and, and now we got to talk about Brett Kavanaugh and whether, you know, later on we'll talk about whether 4,500 tips about him being morally bankrupt and depraved in college should have been followed up by the FBI. So here, I want to ask you something too, uh, back to you, Ben, because <clears throat> Callie's, you know, your your neck of the woods. I was I, I think she's a fine candidate. I looked her up, but I was a little surprised. You know, she has she's been on this labor board thing for a short period of time. She's really a 
um, private lawyer who's worked in labor and labor organizing um, and never was a judge, let alone a trial judge. And Biden has put her up to be on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, sort of skipping what would be normal steps of starting out as a trial judge to learn the process and then, you know, sort of being elevated to the appeal court. What do you what do you think about that? Putting and then I'll get to Kavanaugh and her comments to uh, and Ted Cruz not letting her off the hook during the confirmation hearing. But what do you think about her being elevated like directly to appellate judge on the Ninth Circuit? You know, I I always find it interesting, you know, and I say this on a kind of bipartisan uh, way when someone's appointed to the Ninth Circuit or a court of appeals without having been a federal district court judge before that and kind of skipping that step. Um, But I think you look back, I tell people to look at civilrights.org. Um, and they do a real good recitation of uh, Ms. Sung's impressive legal career. Um, it talks about her work at the Employment Relations Board. Um, it talks about um, her organizing um, and community organizing. You know, and I do think it is helpful to have voices in the judiciary um, who reflect. Uh, labor, you know, and reflect uh, other important aspects that are not just, you know, representing large corporations. And so her experience to me in the field of labor, there are lots of labor disputes that come before the court. And I think you can equally say that how could someone be qualified to handle a labor case as a district court judge if all they've handled was representing corporations that destroy labor? And so you have to get diversity on the court, diversity of views. <laughs> Did you say diversity. employ labor or destroy labor? Destroy labor. <laughs> I know I heard you. <laughs> I think both employ and destroy labor sometimes, but how do you, but you have to have someone who reflects and, and has those views, diversity of views, diversity of opinions, actual diversity is important. And that's what Biden's nominees have embodied so far. Well, you know what? That reminds me. You're right about that. I agree with you. Um, and just to bring that historical background here, Justice Kagan, uh, who's the fourth woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, never served as a trial judge. She was a heart. She was the first female dean of Harvard Law School. She was one of our solicitor general. She was the solicitor general where she argued cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. But she was nominated to be a district judge and her nomination, because the way the Senate was being controlled at that time, never got taken up and it sort of died in committee. She then went back to Harvard, became the dean of Harvard Law School and then got elevated by Obama. So she never served as a trial judge. And I think she's doing a pretty fine job as a as a Supreme Court justice. So yeah, there is I think the difference Popak, is a lot of these Trump nominees were just completely unqualified people. He picked a lot of people from the ranks as like associates from like large law firms with ties to the Republican Party who had no experience whatsoever in adjudicating anything or overseeing disputes or actually seeing the law function. I mean, if you want to have any knock on this current nominee, um, uh, you know, you, you can say that, well, she's only handled labor cases or that's kind of her specialty, but she has an expertise where she's dealt with disputes, which is what she's going to be doing as a Ninth Circuit judge. She has to write opinions in her position. And so there is real world experience there. I have and I have a soft spot for her. She she in looking at her bio, 
she was, I was at, uh, people know my background. I was started my career at Skadden Arps in New York. She was a Skadden fellow to the Brennan Center uh, for constitutional and uh, constitutional issues and democracy here in New York, meaning that big Wall Street law firm, white shoe law firm, paid her way, paid her so that she could be, you know, have a living wage or more while she uh, served an internship at the Brennan Center. She's got the right credentials for me. You know, listen, I think she, they they rehearsed what she needed to do when Ted Cruz went after her and said, I want your answer. Do you think, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is morally bankrupt. I mean, I would have loved for her to have just said, I do, sir. But instead, she wants to get the position. So she sort of equivocated. And at one point she said, oh, it was a fevered pitch of the moment. And I signed a letter, but I'll always respect all the justices and their precedent. That's the best she could do. I hope she gets on. I give Biden a lot of credit and it shows he's got a couple of brass ones because she's not an easy candidate to get through. Um, He knew she was going to hit headwinds of resistance, especially having signed the letter. And he was like, full steam ahead. Let's get her on the Ninth Circuit while we have the Senate. Okay, we'll keep you updated on more developments there. Popak, speaking of developments, though, with Justice Kavanaugh, you know, also in the news, whether the FBI uh, conducted a proper investigation into Kavanaugh's background in connection with his confirmation. Um, I think the FBI received, they disclosed to the Senate, I don't believe this June, uh, two years after the confirmation hearing, that it had received 4,500 tips um, from the public um, that could be deemed relevant tips about issues surrounding Kavanaugh. Um, Of course, we know about the Blasey Ford accusations, Christine Blasey Ford, a professor who knew Kavanaugh in high school um, regarding him sexually assaulting her, um, which she bravely and courageously spoke about. Um, But, you know, even her ability to go to the FBI and other accusers' ability to the FBI was stifled. The FBI director, Chris Wray, claimed that there was a memorandum of understanding that prevented him from investigating unless he was permitted from the White House and he was not permitted. There's some dispute here about whether that MOU actually controlled. That's what was in the news this week. Did this memorandum of understanding and Popak, I want you to tell us what what is this memorandum of understanding and why, why does it matter? Is this one of these traditions and norms that people follow that you just want to you know, just get so angry about because you're like, just do what's right here. You know, why are you following some MOU that may or may not be actually a legal binding document on you? Or is it a legal binding document? You know, and he said, I couldn't investigate it. Um, But the new the new allegations are the MOU didn't prevent him um, from investigating it. It just required a little bit more of a back and forth with the White House and the White House could have limited the inquiry, but could not have prevented the inquiry. Popak, is this like a distinction without any meaning? Is this meaningful? And I think for our viewers and listeners, is there anything we can really do? Because I don't think, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up that Justin Kavanaugh is going to be removed. He's not, in my view, you know, but the process there was, frankly, the whole process for all of Trump's nominees was shameful. Yeah, this has been a really bad week for Chris Ray, the FBI director and the FBI. It's not quite in our wheelhouse, so we're not going to we don't really spend time on the really gut wrenching testimony by the U.S. gymnastic team about uh, Larry Nasser and his and his um, 
sexual abuse of them over years. But, you know, the FBI didn't didn't cover itself in glory in that case either. And having ignored uh, tips and leads and not having properly investigated, which is at the heart of the matter. And the Senate Judiciary Committee, as you saying, is doing a postmortem. We're not going to get Kavanaugh impeached off of this question is, what went wrong and why and who's responsible for it so it doesn't happen again so they're pulling chris ray back in front of them about why didn't you do a proper job of investigating the supreme court nominee that was brad kavanaugh and to remind our viewers and followers the fbi never never interviewed kavanaugh let me just let me just let that hang out there for a moment they never <laughs> interviewed kavanaugh to push back against him on any of the 4,500 tips. I'm not sure all of them are credible. Let's say 100 were credible. Then you get the person in front of you and you go through them and you try to find his side of the story as you suss it out. So never interviewed Kavanaugh and never interviewed Professor Blasey Ford, who had the most damning testimony sworn testimony about what he did to her when he jumped on top of her and almost raped her when she was in college. And they never interviewed her either. So what did they do? And and, and then to, to hold to, to fall back on, well, there was a memorandum of understanding, which was apparently signed by Obama's attorney general, um, Eric Holder. So just don't think all screw ups are at the hands of the Republicans in which he was trying to negotiate with the FBI about what the limits of judicial investigation of their nominees would be. This is where, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And so now the unfortunate thing for this show and this recording is I have not, despite my best efforts, been able to get my hands on the MOU, even though it was apparently produced as part of public records. Have you seen it? I have not seen the MOU. All right. So I'm I'm going to charge our... Midas Mighty and legal AFers to use all lawful means (laughs) to locate the 2010 MOU signed by Eric Holder and provide it to Ben and I so that we can do an update, update, update next week. But my reading about the MOU suggests that they have the FBI has misinterpreted. You know, they have lawyers, too. They've misinterpreted what it said and severely cramped and limited what should have been their primary obligation, which was to get to the bottom of serious charges about the moral, moral morality and ethics of a, of a lifetime appointee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Speaking of updates, 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 here they come. You've got your updates. Updates, updates, updates. Popak, we've been talking about vax requirements, vaccination mandates, mask requirements. We've been talking about these in different states. Um, We've been talking about um, Biden's uh, testing requirements um, and requirements for federal employees around vaccines. Um, I w- we've been talking about the potential constitutional challenges that it may confront. Um, and we've spoke about historical precedents and we went back to, you know, the small pa- the smallpox 
um, uh, epidemic, um, the smallpox uh, ravaging the United States. Did you see Did you see after our podcast, like everybody's talking about that 1905 case since we did that? I've seen it referred to like a hundred <laughs> times since our podcast. I'm going to take credit with you. Oh, I, I think that that originated here. Um, but Popak, the precedent seemed to be on the side that while there are personal freedoms and personal liberties. You also, when you live in a civilized society, have to respect the health and safety of others who are living with you. Um, and it seemed to support in that case, a um, vaccination requirement there. Uh, in New York, there was a vaccination mandate required of healthcare workers that they at least have their first shot. A number of healthcare workers then filed a lawsuit and claimed this law is unconstitutional on the basis of our First Amendment rights because it discriminates against us on the basis of religion, is the argument that they used. They said that this law does not have a religious exemption and that for religious reasons, we as healthcare workers. Um, refuse to get the vaccine. These healthcare workers refuse to lend their names to the complaint, claiming that they would receive pro professional blowback if they uh, gave their names. Um, but Popak, this federal judge in New York, a Clinton appointee, um, uh, his name is David Hurd, um, he granted a preliminary injunction stopping or enjoining this law, allowing a fuller hearing to take place, but on the grounds that this New York law did not have a religious exemption and out. That's how that was analyzed. I want to hear your thoughts, Popak, mm -hmm. but I think to some of these uh, news articles that I've read and, and things I've seen where you have these uh, just fake use of religion as a pretext to destroy vaccine mandates and requirements that are in the interest of people and people just writing religious exemptions um, freely when there's really no such religious exemption that that, that takes place. Popak, what do you think about this? Well, I've got one thing to say this, to kick it off. This, this judge sits in Utica, New York, in the upper regions of up upstate New York, near the Canadian border, sort of. I, I really, I, I'll be frank, I, I didn't really understand the, um, the underlying legal analysis that he's using. And I'll tell you why. On one hand, you have these anonymous doctors and nurses, nurses who claim to be Christian, who say because they're Christian, they can't take vaccine and therefore they should be able to treat the public. I guess wearing a mask, they haven't complained about masks, but unvaccinated during the middle of Delta virus and a pandemic. All right. There is a long body of law that says that your religious convictions cannot stand in the way of public inoculation for disease. That is why the Orthodox Jewish community and the Jehovah Witness community do not sometimes, and the Amish community doesn't send their children to public school. Because if they send their children to public school, one of the things they'll be required to do is inoculate their children against measles, rubella, and all the other list of diphtheria, whatever the rest is.
because you can't send your children in. That's our social contract. That's, that's the liberty that I possess that also protects another person's liberty. You send your child into the public health, uh, the public school system, but he's protected from these childhood diseases. And those that have religious convictions that are really that strong, they can do home teaching. They can teach their kids at home. Even in some states, I'm not sure that's enough. I think your kids still have to be inoculated because they don't live in a bubble and they're going to be outside. So I think that doesn't even avoid it. How First Amendment right to be a Christian allows you to say no to vaccine. I have no earthly idea. I think he's going to have it fully brief. Judge Hurd, H-U-R-D. He's told the state September 22nd, which is right around the corner. Tell me your position, which we know is going to be opposing it. And on September 28th, I'll do it. He says, I'll do an oral argument. I'll do hearing. And then this is going to go right up to the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit, which covers New York, is a very moderate to liberal federal appellate court. And I would be shocked if if he doesn't get it right, the Second Circuit's going to get it right. And the New York State vaccine requirement for healthcare workers frontline prediction, prediction, prediction is going to be ultimately upheld. Now, the question is, well, you and I always talk about these stays. Are the, is it going to be stayed while there's full appellate review? And that's going to be, we're going to be talking about that on the next podcast. Sometimes they are stayed and sometimes they're not stayed. Popak, I would understand this ruling if the government required a religious institution to get a vax mandate. If they literally said church X, church Y, everyone who's in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jews get vaccinated. But these are individuals who made the choice to work in the public health sector, to work as healthcare workers to you know to operate on people to help sick people not to make them sicker so for them to say my religion should allow me to make my patients sicker i think also violates their oath as doctors right they're, 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 how about this my religious my deeply held religion sincere religious belief is that i don't have to wash my hands or wear gloves prior to surgery that's just my thing. I like to get close to my patients. I like to get right in there with my bare hands. And I think the answer to that is no. And you lose your, your medical license. You're not, a, these are not decisions that you individually get to make in an organized society back to the Jacobson, Massachusetts case. These are decisions that are made for us. I'm sorry to, to have to wake up our Republican listeners and followers. And I hope we have some, I assume we do that there is a state interest that overrides individual liberty to protect and in the area, especially of public health. The logic of this decision, Popak, would basically say you don't have to follow the laws in a civilized society. Do whatever you want to do and just claim a religious exemption. I like driving the wrong way down a street. Gets me there faster. Exemption. 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 That's that's completely no seatbelt religious exemption. So, Did you hear this one? Listen to this one. And I I apologize. I don't know the state, but I know what happened because I I did read it in a couple of places. There is a community in our country that can no longer offer the services of 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 uh, delivering babies because they because most of the maternity ward has refused to be inoculated, has walked off the job. So that community, which is not that big, 
can no longer offer local services to women to deliver babies because they don't have enough staff that's willing to get inoculated. Where are, where, what country did I wake up in? Apparently upstate New York an upstate New yeah. York hospital Utica. announced that it will stop delivering babies this month ah. after several staffers in the maternity department resigned over the hospital systems coronavirus you, mandate. So you're was that actually upstate in New York the, again. You're actually in the area where this lawsuit was filed. <laughs> so it kind of, it kind right. of makes sense. Popak, we're going to talk about where you file lawsuits right now. But I think we pause here. Do you think that one, this bullshit, I just want to call it what it is, this bullshit pretext religious exemption claim here. That's not what this is really about. This is about people trying to undermine vaccine requirements. And it's part of the GQP's agenda to harm us all as Americans. I think that's clear. But do you think as part of the effort, these individuals who are likely organized by GQPers, they want to stay anonymous, but it's probably not probably, I could say with some degree of confidence, almost likely is a concerted effort by one of these wacko GQP groups. You think they picked that location specifically to file the lawsuit in? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to even prove your point, even if you didn't know it. You and I have talked about the Thomas More Society, which sounds like a religious organization on campus named after St. Thomas More, but is actually a private law firm sitting in Chicago that, that files these cases seriatim over and over again, sometimes successfully, depending upon the jurisdiction and venue, and sometimes not. You and I have talked about them in prior, in prior podcasts and other cases. They filed this lawsuit. There is no doubt in my mind that they, they handpicked the venue and jurisdiction to file this to even if they were to pull an Obama or Clinton appointee, which they did in this case, even though he's a senior status judge in his late 70s, that they wanted a very conservative region in the state of New York to test it. Just to give you an example, Stefanik, who is, I don't know, she's like 30, but she's now the number three member of the House on the Republican side comes from one of these regions in up upstate New York. So for our listeners and followers abroad, and we have a number of them, and in the United States that thinks New York is all liberal pinko communists you know, that run around, that's Manhattan where I live. But, but in the other parts of the state, the more north you go, the redder it is. In fact, if you saw the map for the elections for Trump, it's like another one of these sea of reds and then blue. Luckily, the sea of red, there's like nine people in each county. And in the blue, it's the metropolis is like Manhattan, Brooklyn, you know, Staten Island and, 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 the, and the like. But yes, they handpicked Utica, New York to be if they're going to challenge this this New York statute, they're going to find the most conservative region of New York in which to do it. Well, the good thing is land doesn't vote. People vote. And that's, so those see that's very good <laughs> T-shirt New land, merchandise land doesn't vote. Um, Popak, you talked about picking that jurisdiction and our listeners and viewers may be wondering, like, wait a minute, I could just pick wherever it is I want to file. And how do I draw a judge? Maybe give us some context there, because we're going to talk about 
um, this case that the DOJ filed to enjoin and stop the Texas handmade bounty hunter, anti-childbearing person, anti-women law. We're going to talk about that in a second, which was filed in Texas. But just briefly, briefly, Popak, not a whole Popakian diatribe, but if you can just talk. I'm not, I'm not, wait, no, the, whole, wait, the whole show is based on <laughs> Ben and Michael's diatribes. I'm just teasing you, Popak. <laughs> talk about how could they pick it? Could they have picked any jurisdiction? And that it has to be people who are based there. There has to have a jurisdictional hook. And then are the judges randomly assigned? Like, how does that yeah. work? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it quickly. Um, so you Moving have to on. Have... Thank you. Po- I'm just joking. Po- <laughs> po- Go for it. <laughs> there's going to be a riot. There's going to be a riot. I want to look over at the chatter because there's going to be a riot. People have said, don't cut it short. Go long. We like we're in this. Keep going. All right. Anyway, we're doing we're doing fine on time, I assure you. So um, lawyers like you and I, trial lawyers like you and I that file cases, you know, sometimes plaintiffs come in our door and, and you have to file it. What's where there's plaintiff? a plaintiff? <laughs> That's right. Hello. Knock hey. on the door. Come on in. Sometimes they just walk in and wherever they were injured or wherever there's a legitimate way to show both what we call jurisdiction. So the court has to have jurisdiction over the matter and the court has to have jurisdiction over the person that's in front of them. And there's a whole analysis that you and I have talked about on prior podcasts about how he does that. Then there's a venue analysis, which is, are you in the right courthouse? Should you be in federal court? And what are the restri- what are the requirements for federal court, um, which are generally federal question is at stake? Or you have two people or two entities from different um, diverse states or a foreign country in a state, and there's a jurisdictional amount of, I think, 75,000, and you can walk into federal court. Or should you be in state court? And then which courthouse should you be in and where? And that's going to have to do with, is it a convenient forum for the parties? Do the witnesses all sort of reside there? Is the information there, the data, the exhibits, did the, did the crime, the event, uh, the breach of contract happen there? And And so these are all the considerations that you and I go into. But you and I have talked about without revealing client confidences, if we've got a choice between one jurisdiction or another, the jurisdiction where the defendant resides or the jurisdiction where our client resides or where the event might have happened. And now there's three jurisdictions. We'd be we'd be committing malpractice if we didn't look at each other and say, Where's the best shot for the best judge and the best court for the issues that are at stake in this litigation? We don't just go, oh, let's just any old judge. We'll just walk in. Hopefully we'll pull a good one. I mean, that is this is trial lawyer 101 is to try to find the right docket to place your case. So evil shout out to the Thomas More Society. They did their research. Didn't take them that long and figured out that if you're going to file a conservative based case, or a right wing, as you like to say, right wing religious case, do it in upstate New York, not in Manhattan. So you got to find plaintiffs that reside up there, which is what they did and challenge the because that's a statewide mandate. So that could be challenged by any citizen located in any of the counties within New York. But they chose the county particularly. And then within it, it's a random wheel assignment, usually by the clerk's office to assign the particular judge. They literally run an electronic wheel. And next up is that judge. If that judge doesn't have a conflict of interest, it'll it'll stay with that judge. If that judge has had issues with the lawyers or 
there's a there's a reason he should be disqualified or she should be disqualified or what we call recused. You'll lose that judge and it'll be assigned to a new one. You and I have been involved with cases directly where we had not one, not two, but three judges. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to it's public record so we can tell the we can tell the listeners. That's true. So it was when Popak and I filed the lawsuit against Marjorie Taylor Greene. You heard it right there in uh, the Central District of California, where Midas Touch is headquartered, where our principal place of business. We filed it in federal court and we filed her for blocking the Midas Touch account on Twitter um, and violating the constitutional rights in our First Amendment to be involved in public advocacy um, against her policies by blocking us. Um, that resulted in, and it's public, there's no confidentiality clause, it resulted in a settlement. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, settled it for $10,000. Uh, Midas Touch made a donation in $10,000 to two groups that support um, gun reform, um, that support taking militarized weapons outside of schools and outside of school zones, which completely set Marjorie Taylor Greene off that we then did that with the resolution proceeds. But in that case, Popak, we had like three judges who were like, yeah, I'm not touching this Midas touch V. And, and they claimed a conflict, but I just think it was, oh, we're not really getting involved in this Midas touch V Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene lawsuit. You and I, as lawyers on the case, get get these emails with the electronic updates of the case. And I said to you at one point, do we just lose another judge? We just got one like eight hours ago. No, nobody wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole. But eventually somebody has to. I mean, they can't all just say, "Mm, sorry. So eventually a judge gets assigned. Usually it's not as hard as what Ben just described, uh, dealing with Midas Touch. And you get the judge assigned and then and then you're off and running. And we're going to talk now whenever whenever Ben's ready, we'll talk about the one in Texas and what happened there. Ben is always ready, (laughs) Popak, and that will be on the T-shirt. Ben is always ready. So the next the next update, update, update is uh, the DOJ's injunction against the handmade, the handmaid's tale, horrible bounty hunter law that totally takes away a childbearing person, a woman's right to choose in the state of Texas, turns neighbors into bounty hunters to report each other. It tries to get around Roe v. Wade and Casey and the progeny of cases that provide a woman's right to choose and a childbearing person's right to choose as a constitutional right. Popak broke down the constitutional analysis of how, while the exact text of the Constitution does not say there is a constitutional right to an abortion. Um, That right is within the Constitution's reach and its ambit, and that's how it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court beginning in the Roe case. Merrick Garland and the DOJ filed the lawsuit to stop, to enjoin um, this Texas Handmaid's Tale law. It was filed in the Western District of Texas. They drew a judge Judge Robert Pittman and Judge Robert Pittman. I mean, you're in Texas. Remember, land doesn't vote in Texas is becoming a purple state. But I would imagine it's probably more likely you get a a Republican appointee in Texas than you would a Democratic uh, appointee. But you got Robert Pittman, who is a 
uh, Obama appointee. Um, Pittman did something interesting this week, Popak, which was the way it was reported. It sounded like bad news, but want you to tell us more here. He did not agree to an immediate injunction um, of the law or to stop the law um, from going into it for, to prevent the law from being enforced. The language in the ruling Popak also kind of looks like that Supreme Court ruling a little bit in terms of there's a lot of complexities here and a lot of issues that need to be discussed. But unlike the Supreme Court, which kind of punted the issue, Pittman said, look, let's hear this on October 1st. October 1st isn't that far away. So basically there's a few weeks um, and this will be heard given a full briefing. What I think Pittman wants to do here is have all the evidence out there, have all the briefing out there, not really make this, make it less susceptible to being overturned on appeal by building out the record here, which is what the hearing will require the parties to submit um, evidence and data and facts and things supporting the claims. And he'll hear this on October 1st. My prediction, Popak, is that there will be an injunction on the law um, that's coming late October, uh, November. What do you think is going on here? Yeah. And to pick up something that you mentioned that's really important about um, the brilliance of Merrick Garland in this scenario, because he's in Texas. He has no choice. He's challenging. He has to be in Texas. He's challenging with his Department of Justice, the Texas abortion ban in the land of, of uh, Gilead that they've created there. It's not just the Western District of Texas that he filed in. He filed in a particular courthouse that sits in Austin, Texas. Austin is the most, it's like the Greenwich Village of Texas. It is the most liberal location. It's where the college town, I've been to Austin. I felt very comfortable in Austin uh, as I don't, not sure I would in other parts of the state, maybe, but he picked the right place. And and people love you everywhere. Well, yeah, I don't want to be, I like Texas. I've been to Dallas and Houston, San Antonio, but, but Austin is a very uh, agreeable place when it comes to moderate and democratic politics. So I'm not surprised that there will happen to be sitting in there an Obama appointee sitting in in Austin. Now, um, we got two problems here. One, Judge Pittman is doing, as you noted, the right thing. He could have issued what we you and I call in the business or lawyers call in the business an ex parte order of injunction which would mean without the other side's really full briefing and without oral argument. He's elected not to do that, which means the the abortion ban is going to be on the books for almost a full month, meaning no Texas women, including ones critically needing it for this month, are going to be denied that right until we get around to having this full briefing. But it is, you know, we're talking about a month, not a year away, as it would be with the U.S. Supreme Court. He'll hold the briefing. And you're right. He, it is the same problem that we talked about with the Supreme Court case. How do you enjoin the you have to enjoin a thing? You have to enjoin a person. You have you can enjoin the state. Of course, their comeback is we're not doing anything. We're embodying and empowering all of the local bounty hunters to go do their thing and judges at the trial court level. And you can't. Enj- so figure it out. And, you know, but he's doing something the Supreme Court punted on for a year, which is he's going to try to figure it out and figure out how to reach 
and I think an injunction and enjoin this openly defiant, to use the term of the Department of Justice, attack on the U.S. Constitution and women's rights. And if he does, the problem, and this is where other podcasts come into play, is that it goes up to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit is a supremely conservative circuit. So, so supremely conservative that it allowed this abortion ban to go forward the first time. I'm not saying that on the merits, they're not going to come to a different decision. But the quicker we get to Pittman, Judge Pittman, the quicker we get to his ruling, the quicker it gets to the fifth with whatever result they're going to make. And the quicker we take it back to the Supreme Court. The, The problem is, I think it just joins up with the Mississippi case. I don't think they handle this earlier. I think we're, we're again a year away from having a definitive ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court on a woman's right to choose under Roe v. Wade and its progeny. And Popak, that case you're referring to is called Thomas E. Dobbs, M.D., the state health officer of the Mississippi Department of Health et al. versus Jackson Women's Health Organization et al., That is a case that will decide, will Roe v. Wade, will Casey, the whole line of cases that give the right to choose and find that it is a constitutional right for women and childbearing persons, is that going to remain the precedent or will those laws be overturned? You know, it's really scary. Oh, there's so many scary things. I don't know why I, I don't know why I let in with that one. The and, and I tweeted about this on Legal AF, the former solicitor general for Texas, John Mitchell, who is the architect of the current ban. One of the I hate to use this phrase, one of the fathers of the ban filed an amicus brief, a friends of the court brief in support of overturning Roe versus Wade in the Mississippi case just recently, in which he not only said that Roe versus Wade should be overturned, that women should return to abstinence as birth control if they really were concerned or talk about callousness. Basically, liberal Democrats with money should pay to have Texas women leave the state and go to liberal states in this union. Again, his his two country solution. Right. Go to New York and get your abortion and let the liberals pay for it. But the, if it wasn't as callous If that isn't callous enough, it goes even further and suggests to the justices that they should not only overturn Roe v. Wade, but they should use that as the beginnings to overturn same sex marriage. And while they're at it, gay sex overall. One of his co-authors of that amicus brief is a former Justice Thomas clerk. I mean, it just calls me that the Republicans believe they can just openly say that all of the rights and human rights and constitutional rights that you and I and generations before you and I fought so hard to protect can just be destroyed and unraveled because they've got the numbers at the current U.S. Supreme Court. Let's literally read what this Jonathan Mitchell, this former solicitor general um, of Texas, what he actually said in his brief. Quote, women can control their reproductive lives without access to abortion. They can do so by refraining from sexual intercourse, is one of the lines that he said. He also says, as for women's sexual behavior, one can imagine a scenario in which a woman has chosen to engage in unprotected, 
or insufficiently protected sexual in intercourse on the assumption that an abortion will be available to her later. But when this court announces the overruling of Roe v. Wade, that individual can simply change their behavior if she no longer wants to take the risk of an unwanted pregnancy. Again, meaning that a woman should not have sex. Um, and this is a man who's saying this. And everyone should just look up just who this Jonathan Mitchell yeah. is. You can see his photo on the Federalist he, Society. But uh, he, gave, he gave birth to the abortion ban. No pun intended. He is. I mean, this is just a disgusting and despicable person who's never had to deal with these issues. And that's what makes it additionally disgusting and despicable for him to pontificate of and, and the way he even phrases that it's it's just filled with this hatefulness in, in the sentence yeah, misog it's misogyny, misogyny, it's misogyny and hatefulness. Yeah. And literally those words and someone like Jonathan Mitchell, it's not an exaggeration to say that even goes a step beyond some of the things you see in Handmaid's Tale. So like it's at that level of craziness and that is going on right now. He is speaking to a Supreme Court, though, and this is the bad prediction. But this is why you all need to be motivated out there. I think Popak, they are going to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey. They have the votes to do it. I, I don't see I don't see why with the Amy Coney Barrett being uh, now on on the court, um, her entire literature is overturning Roe v. Wade. She was appointed to do that. Um, and I suspect that's what's going to happen. What, what do you think is yeah. going to happen when this misses? Yeah, it, it, it's it's so diabolical that we have to sit here and think about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, it really makes my heart hurt that we're still talking about this. And Roberts, who, who was able to hold the court together, but with Ruth Bader Ginsburg still on the court and and save a woman's right to choose the last time around, He's really we've talked about this in prior podcasts. He's lost the court. The center is not holding. There is no center. He's siding more on fundamental issues with the liberal wing than he is with with those that are considered to be the right wing. And so this is going to be a terrible tug of war. And it's going to unfortunately come down because we already know where Alito stands. He's already basically voted. We know where Thomas stands. Pretty sure I know where. Kavanaugh. And, the, and so the fight is going to be Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. The, Amy Coney Barrett, a former University of Notre Dame Catholic University law professor with seven children and Gorsuch, who has sided, who has sided with things like gay marriage and and rights of of gay and lesbian, the gay and lesbian community. But that's going to be the battle in caucus and conference within the Supreme Court. It's going to be the clerks arrayed for Kavanaugh, uh, for Gorsuch and those for Amy Coney Barrett, while Roberts tries to keep order in the House to save a fundamental constitutional right. I think here, Popak, it comes down to Gorsuch. I, I really do. I, yeah. I think Amy Coney Barrett's, I mean, her literature is to overturn Roe v. Wade and why it's unconstitutional. So I don't think she I don't think <laughs> she changes that view. I Probably think not. you've seen with Gorsuch. Um, on these types of social issues, uh, willingness to uh, be open-minded. Um, yeah. And I, I hate to even frame it that way, but that's, I think that's our hope. And um, yeah, I agree. Know, the, other, the other hope though is, and what we need to also 
you know, continue to do is make sure we don't have uh, voter, you not voting, like, you know, people didn't vote in 2016, you know, our friends and people not voting, like you need to be out there every yeah. day because if we have another GQP president and this entire Supreme Court swings a certain way, like all your rights are going to be gone. And I hate to put it in those stark terms, but that's that's what's at stake here. Yeah, look, look, look at the brave before we before we uh, conclude. Look at the brazenness. That That's the thing that I find most shocking with my historical sort of viewpoint is the brazenness at which these right wing religious zealot um, people feel that they can just say out loud their convictions like this and overturn 50 years of constitutional or 100 years of constitutional principles, because like I said, they have the numbers, the brazenness about no Democrat would ever write if we if the numbers were reversed. Oh, you know, all those things you really love, the Second Amendment and all that. We're getting rid of that. You know, all those things that you that you're clinging to, they're gone as soon as we get the numbers. A, we wouldn't do it and we certainly wouldn't say it. And they're saying it out loud. That's how right. they felt. And truly, they have no convictions other than their uh, hatred of women, their hatred of minorities, um, and them wanting to establish yeah. a white supremacist apartheid state in the United States. They don't want America to be a diverse country. So, yeah. Popak, one more update, update. Um, e. Jean Carroll, we discussed uh, the E. Jean Carroll saga. She was a guest on the Midas Touch podcast, an incredible guest on the podcast. She said that me and the uh, my younger brother should all get cheerleader outfits with the uh, letter M on it was one of her uh, obs <laughs> observations about us, which led a lot of the Midas Mighty to envision I might that. To see that. Well, I'm not yes. sure you want to see it. We've got a lot of <laughs> items photoshopped. Um, but tell us what's going on here, Popak, where a federal judge has denied uh, Trump's request, but it's really the DOJ request, the previous DOJ request um, to stay or stop the proceedings while they substitute in as Trump's lawyer in the case. Um, Trump, through Bill Barr, had the DOJ substitute in into this case involving the accusations by E. Jean Carroll against Donald Trump that uh, he defamed her by basically saying, I don't know who she is. You know, I never touched her. I never sexually assaulted her and making another disparaging remarks about her when, in fact, prior to that, she's alleged that she was sexually assaulted by him in the mid 90s at a Bergdorf. Goodman. So she sued him for defamation based on statements that he made to the press on the eve of Trump having to turn over discovery, including DNA samples that could potentially confirm a match with E. Jean Carroll's dress that has a male DNA sample on it as well. The Department of Justice stepped in, had the United States represent Trump basically changed the caption of the case on their own so that it basically read E. Jean Carroll versus the United States of America instead of Donald Trump. One of the surprising things, Popak, was that 
when Merrick Garland stepped in, we weren't sure was Merrick Garland and the DOJ going to keep those designations of having the United States be in there, you know, representing Trump and be a defendant in the case instead of Trump. They did do that, which was a bit surprising to some of our listeners. We've spoken about this before, that Merrick Garland was still attempting to, in his mind, preserve the idea that if a president speaks at a press conference generally, that's usually a presidential duty. And so him responding to questions in that capacity still allows there to be some executive privilege and allows the government to step in. But what's interesting here now with this ruling, I think, is, well, what's Merrick Garland and the DOJ going to do next? Because now that the DOJ substituted in, you have a federal judge that basically said, great, welcome to the party, DOJ. You're, you're, you're in. But you know what? We're not going to stop these proceedings right now while you make your arguments that the case should be dismissed for executive privilege or for these other reasons. So, yeah, we'll wait to see what the Court of Appeals is going to do. But let but go on, continue the case, continue exchanging discovery. Now, it was denied without prejudice, meaning that it could there could be another motion that's filed to stay it to the extent there is an appeals process um, taking place to assert executive privilege. But Popak, do you think Merrick, one, what's going on here? Two, <laughs> Merrick Garland, pretty much the DOJ, they may just be like, you know, we're a little busy right now. Uh, go on with the discovery and uh, we'll assert executive privilege, but we're not going to intervene and actually stop discovery from going forward here. Yeah, well, that, that's just, there's, in this little case, that's really important, and not just to E. Jean Carroll, but to the fundamental principles that are enmeshed within the case. But to, but to remind our followers and listeners, if the government is successfully substituted in to replace Trump as the defendant, at the end of the day, and I'm not sure when that end of the day is, the case will be over because her case, E. Jean Carroll's case, is one for defamation. And the federal government, the U.S. government, cannot be sued for defamation. So whether they do it at the motion to dismiss level, which I think has already been, I thought, denied, or at the summary judgment level, or at trial, ultimately, the trier of fact or the, or the giver of law is going to have to decide, whether it's a judge or a jury, whether Donald Trump at a press conference was wearing his president hat and therefore covered by privilege, or he was not, had stepped outside and was acting as an individual and therefore can be sued for defamation. This, this nettlesome issue of whether he was or was not acting as the president at the time, this judge, Judge um, Lewis Kaplan, has decided to punt it in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of E. Jean Carroll, down the road until the Second Circuit makes its ultimate decision about whether um, the motion to dismiss, the first level motion to dismiss that was granted uh, was right or wrong, or whether it should just continue through trial, development of facts, and the ultimate legal issue of whether the, the government was is the proper defendant or not. Uh, and therefore cannot be sued for defamation is ultimately decided. So what Kaplan did, what Judge Kaplan did to kind of just keep the ball rolling is he issued a no page opinion. We talked today about 102 pages out of North Carolina. Judge Kaplan issued no pages 
He denied the motion for stay at the trial court level that was filed by Trump's lawyers while the appeal goes on at the Second Circuit in November. Now, is that the end of the stay issue? No, the Second Circuit itself has the power to issue a stay. So now there's going to be a little mini briefing at the Second Circuit by the Trump lawyers and the lawyers for E. Jean Carroll, who's Robbie Kaplan's firm, to decide whether there should be a stay. If there's not a stay, and as of this moment right now, there's not a stay, then the plaintiff's law firm for, for Ms. Carroll can issue subpoenas and do civil discovery and take depositions and exchange documents and run the case. Now, when she was quoted, the lawyer for for Ms. Carroll said, uh, or Mrs. Carroll said, um, we're preparing for the briefing at the Second Circuit in November, and we'll sort of wait to see what happens there. I mean, they could set a deposition tomorrow of Donald J. Trump in the case, um, but I, I guess they think that'll be a sterile exercise. He'll just put up the privilege. They'll be running back to the judge and to the Second Circuit. So I think they're they're just gearing themselves and loading themselves for the Second Circuit argument in November that you and I will will dutifully report on once it comes out. But that's what's going on with the stay. And again, you know, another favorable venue for a plaintiff like E. Jean Carroll. You've got Lewis Kaplan, who is not only married to a New York Times journalist and, and Ms. Carroll comes out of publishing and journalism. But, you know, he's been he's a senior status judge. He's been there for a long time. He's probably a Democrat. He's the right judge for this case, having been filed in Manhattan against Donald J. Trump, as opposed to a conservative section of New York or Texas. Popak, I love the quote that you read of E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. I think that's just such a deep quote, quote, we will be proceeding with the case. <laughs> Whatever the right, right. I was thought, well, I Robbie think it was Kaplan, be something, right. something meaty. It was like, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I, I think the reason the judge didn't issue any paper when he when he granted or denied the stay is he doesn't want like something else to have, you know, that can be appealed. He just is like, no, I'm not staying. If you want to get it stayed, go to the Second Circuit where you're having the appeal, but I'm not doing it. You know my position. My position is that the argument that Trump wasn't, you know, isn't, uh, it wasn't uh, acting in a personal capacity and can't be sued for defamation is sort of BS. Get on with your case. But he also understands as a senior judge that there are broader appellate issues that are going on. And yes, Robbie Kaplan is very political. And she gave a very political response, which is, See at the oral argument next month. And Robbie Kaplan is E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, yep. and she also is representing Mary Trump in her proceedings against Donald Trump as well. Those were your updates, updates. Hope you enjoyed those updates. Popak, let us talk about Paul Hodgkins. Paul Hodgkins <laughs> was the insurrectionist. He was adjacent to the barbarian QAnon follower. Um, uh, Hodgkins is in the photo holding the stupid red Trump flag, wearing the stupid Trump 2020 shirt. He's got his war goggles on. If you look at the photo, the barbarian hat is just uh, to the right of him. And Paul Hodgkins was the first January 6th insurrectionist. Popak, when, I don't like when these media use the term rioter. Like, yes, they were rioters, but these are insurrectionists also. And I think that is important to keep referring to them as insurrectionists who tried to overthrow our democracy and kill uh, uh, our politicians, um, to kill 
Pelosi, Pence, pretty much anyone they can get their hands on. Um, but thanks to the bravery of Capitol Police officers, Metropolitan Police officers, they were stopped. So this guy Hodgkins, he was charged. Um, he took a plea agreement. He made a deal with the government. He was represented um, by a lawyer, uh, somebody named Patrick Leduc, um, a former JAG reserve officer um, who was deployed in Qatar. This lawyer's been assisting Afghan refugees recently. Someone who was representing a criminal defendant. I'm fine with people representing criminal defendants. I'm not fine with them overthrowing our elections, but you could represent criminal defendants. Um, but entered a plea deal in Popak. This were one of the cases, this could have even potentially fit into the update section because we had the judges basically telling the government, you know, you're not really going after these people hard enough. Um, and even here, there was a 18 month recommendation. Um, there was a, the government was a 16 month sentence recommendation. This Hodgkins guy was only sentenced to an eight month jail term. So, you know, I guess the government's also thinking, look, we did a 16 month and you gave him eight though. So why'd you do that? But they gave him eight months. I mean, these people should be going away, Popak, for their life, I believe. 16 months is ridiculous. These people should go to jail for 20, 30 years. If these were not white Six men claiming mental health issues, <laughs> fucking bullshit. These if these were black and brown people, they'd probably be dead on the Capitol steps. Plus, plus 16 months, he'll be back out while Biden is still president. Right, exactly. And so he got an, he got an eight month sentence by the federal court. And now he's seeking to unwind his so plea crazy. agreement. Um, and he's alleging that the plea agreement was a complete forgery, that he had no information about it, that that's not his signature. He hired a new lawyer. His old lawyers like basically the quote was, I'm sick of this shit. I'm so fucking over this. He didn't say fucking, but he goes, I'm so he goes. His quote was the Leduc guy. He's like, I'm so over this. He goes, I spent hours and hours and hours sitting with him, going over every single page of the plea agreement that he understood. And he said, it's frankly, it's frankly mind boggling. These things keep popping up. I'm floored. And by these things keep popping up, I think what he means, Popak, are these people are just fucking crazy. Um, they're maniacs. And to me, what this also goes to Popak is that that eight month sentence, that 16 month sentence is not enough. These people need to learn that <laughs> these are crazy people. So, so this one's so whacked. First of all, he's the guy we you talked about the guy with the the Chewbacca helmet. This is the guy with the Trump 2020 t-shirt and Trump flag that ended up on the Senate floor rifling through papers in the recently evacuated Senate chamber after they just barely got out of there seconds before these idiots and insurrectionists and violent overthrowers got their way in. He the reason he got even though it was a felony, the reason he even got eight months instead of the 16 is because the judge noted at the time is that he accepted full responsibility. And not only did he sign, he claims now a conveniently forged, but he had to stand in court and acknowledge, do an allocution, acknowledge the crime that he committed, admit to the crime that he committed out loud under oath in front of the judge. Where was there any mention that, oh, by the way, the thing that I'm now saying out loud under oath that I did, 
I, I somebody else signed my signature to that plea deal. This guy is. So here's what's going to happen. He's going to be the judge is going to resentence him, finding that he's now pulling a fraud on the court because he found some lawyer who's one year member of the bar. Now, look, she's got a 30 year, allegedly a 30 year career in the U.S. military, the army as a colonel and some sort of intelligence officer. But she's been a lawyer for like, I'm not kidding, like 10 months. So he found this person probably through the loony right wing conspiracy network that's out there headed by Sidney Powell and and Lynn Wood. They found this poor person just freshly minted out of some law school I've never heard of. And so they she takes the case. And first thing she does is get some forgery expert. And you can buy these experts anywhere who said, oh, aha, must be a forgery. That signature doesn't match. And this is what they put in front of the judge. And the judge warned this lawyer and said, you really want to go down this road because it'll probably be worse for your client. Because if the plea deal is gone, then let's go to trial. And if we're going to trial, I bet the government now having to be put through this BS goes for a three, five, 10 year sentence instead of the sentence in the plea deal. So that's where you want to go. Or you've committed a fraud on the court. If it turns out, Right. Yeah, right. Which is worse for you. Now I'm just I'm the same guy, the Lord, the judge that's going to sentence you to more time. So I don't get what he's trying. You know, I, I like to think like these people occasionally. So no, I understand where don't. they're coming from. <laughs> you no, like, like to I think to. what they're thinking, not think. What like are they thinking? <laughs> but does he think he he walks out the courthouse door, a free man? That can't be what he's thinking. He he gets less of a sentence because the plea deal is thrown out. Or does he just want his crazy day in court? So that he can be a martyr and go to jail for three or five years and come out and write a book. I mean, what what do you think's going through this guy's mind to throw away a plea deal to do effectively minimal, minimal time of eight months? Popak, Popak, Popak. I am a legal analyst. I am not an analyst of the sick, psycho, <laughs> demented minds of fucking Trump nutbags. This is an insur- <laughs> This is a crazy insurrectionist, Popak. What do I think he's thinking? I don't know. I think he's thinking that the QAnon moon man is going to come back and annoy yes. Trump and the Moonies as, he, you know, I wouldn't fuck. Knows. That could be it. Wait, no, no, that could be it. Trump is reinstalled on some weird date in the future and he has his sentence commuted. Popak, that could be the it. point is this. These sicko psychopath GQ peers, they need to be held accountable. You said it perfectly, Popak. If you want to know how unfair our legal system is, just look at one of the most glaring examples staring you in the face right here. You know, these white men insurrectionists, mostly white men who are getting sentenced for literally trying to overthrow the United States government, who are caught on video, who enter into our democracy's most sacred chambers, who break things, throw things everywhere. They're getting sentenced to eight months and their fucking privilege, their fucking privilege to say that is unfair, judge, unwind that deal, judge. That is what's wrong right there with our legal system. And I hope these January 6th insurrectionists rot. 
I hope they rot in prison for the rest of their lives. And they go claim, oh, I had a mental health issue. Lots of people suffer from mental health issues. And we take that incredibly seriously. Those people don't commit insurrections. Right. But that's and that I agree with you, but they're not claiming they're mentally unstable. The, the, The other right wing elected officials are claiming that they're like Marjorie Taylor Greene and all the rest are claiming they're political prisoners. Look at the language, the big brother language or Wellian language, political prisoners. That's that's the side of this argument that you're on as a a right wing Republican, that the people that tried to overthrow democracy for the first time in our history are political prisoners of the United States. That's where you want to be. And his friend, the barbarian Popak, and that was the reference I was referring to. And some of the other insurrectionists. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the barbarian guy, the QAnon shaman not the Popokian shaman, the QAnon (laughs) shaman. He said that, you know, his lawyer made the argument to get him leniency that he had mental health issues. And there are some Mm -hmm. that are arguing that. But yes, the political class, the actual Republicans who are GQPers now, who are not conservative people, who are complete psychopaths, they're calling these people political prisoners. But let me tell you one thing, Popak, when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And that brings me to my closing point today. Let's look at California. Let's look at California. And as Gavin Newsom said, while the Californians voted no on this GQP inspired ridiculous recall, look what they voted yes for. They voted yes for the right to choose They voted yes for climate. They voted yes for the economy. They voted yes on issues that matter to the American people like democracy. When you go look at those exit polls, what you see is that many people think that Gavin Newsom's mandate measures and vaccine measures did not go far enough. You look at the stats, 65, 70% of Californians support it or want it to go further. And that's just not a California phenomenon. As we look, we had governor, former Governor Charlie Crist on the Midas Touch podcast, who's now running against DeSantis in Florida, polling 10 points ahead of DeSantis. DeSantis won by, by a margin of error that is smaller than the amount of people who have died in Florida of COVID based on his wayward policies. We look at Virginia, we look at 2022, and we see that while the GQP embraces Trumpism, embraces a side of law. You know, what Popak and I are talking about on this show as lawyers, to me is not democratic tilted or Republican tilted. These are pro-democracy positions of fundamental rights that people have. And when you see the GQPers calling people like this individual we just mentioned, who's an insurrectionist, this criminal we just mentioned, embracing them and calling political prisoners, That's what's motivated Popak and I to do this show. That's what motivated us to spend the weekend talking to you about these legal issues, empowering you with this knowledge so you learn about the law, so you know your rights, but that you use the information that we provide you, that Midas Touch provides you, to go out and make sure that we preserve, protect, and defend our Constitution and the United States of America at all times. Popak and I, as we always tell you, we're practicing lawyers. Popak and I handle cases. We get 
we appreciate a lot of people have actually sent in cases that they had. We do our best to try to respond. And if we can't respond, try to direct you to potential resources for you. But if you have a case, whether it's a discrimination case, a sexual harassment case against you, whether it's a personal injury case, I handle those cases where there's catastrophic injury, really bad accidents, really bad injuries and damages. Um, I do cases where I do lots of civil rights cases. Popak and I handle business dispute cases, contract cases. We represent founders that often have disputes with corporations over their shares and just other large business disputes. So reach out to me and Popak. You can email me, ben at midastouch.com, B-E-N at M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H.com. Popak's email is mpopak, M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com. That's mpopak at zplaw.com. We're wearing, or I'm wearing the Midas merch today. Check out the Midas merch. Go to the Midas merch store. Get your Legal AF merch, your Midas Touch merch. I you love- need a Legal AF t-shirt. I'll wear my Legal AF t-shirt on the next one, Popak. And your closing words, Popak. Ben. 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 I can't tell you how much I enjoy doing this show <laughs> with you. <laughs> I just wanted to say three Bens in a row. Uh, I, again, you know, listen, I, I get up every every day after the podcast fired up by our followers, listeners, the Midas mighty, the Popakians, the Mysalicians um, to do it again, which is a remarkable achievement because there's very few things that I do this successfully once a week and that I look forward to, but I, it just, we do it again. And, and you and I create that list during the week and we go back and forth on the list during the, the cut down to the, to the, the podcast and, and to the video. And, um, I just feel like we're having fun. We're doing it in the right way. We're touching people, resonating with people. And, and we're, we're doing what you said. We're defending our democracy and giving people the tools to do that in the streets, in the chat rooms, on the internet, with their families, wherever it is. We're just given, given, we're, we're dropping knowledge. Drop that knowledge. Popoke in. The feeling is mutual. Thank you, everyone who watched this podcast live. Thank you, everyone who's listening, no matter where you are in the country, in the world. We appreciate you. We appreciate all the support, your enthusiasm for Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. As my younger brother Jordy would say, shout out to the Midas Mighty. We'll see you next time.